You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. So now that brings us back to today, which is Palm Sunday, and we're going to get into the word here in a second. Um, In case you missed what Nick was saying earlier, Palm Sunday is the first day of Holy Week, and that culminates in Easter, and we think it's called Palm Sunday, well, we call it Palm Sunday because we think that the branches that people cut uh, and laid them down on the ground as Jesus was coming into town on that donkey were probably palm branches. Uh, But in order to understand why those people did that and what relevance that has in our lives today, we have to go back to the original prophecy where this was foretold, that Jesus would do this, that the Messiah would do this. And so we're going to look uh, very briefly at the passage found in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. I'm going to read this, and then we will pray and get into it. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, that's another name for Judah, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, that's worldwide, and from the river, that's the river Euphrates, to the ends of the earth. Let's pray as we receive these words. Father God, we thank you so much for sending us Jesus to be our king. And as we come to this truth that we find here in Zechariah, we acknowledge that that God, we really look for a Messiah, we look for a king, we look for salvation in so many other places other than in your son. And so as we look at your word, would you expose those things in our hearts and in our lives that we might uh, not look for those things there, not look for a savior in a place where it can't be found, but ultimately would you direct our hearts Help us to see Jesus, the Messiah, the King and Savior of the world, for who he truly is. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So as we look at Jesus as this Messiah, I wanted to begin our time by kind of investigating the ways in which we are constantly being sold false messiahs, false saviors. People who come or things that come to save us from something else. And I want to give you a a few different examples of this. I want to start with exercise equipment. I know that sounds like a weird place to start. Um, And exercise equipment is good, right? It's helpful. Um, Not a bad thing. In fact, if you saw marketing for exercise equipment, it said, here is an exercise bike. You can use it to exercise. That would be perfectly fine, right? That would be honest. (laughs) This might help you to be a more healthy person, something like that. But Peloton will save you, friends. This tells us right here 
Um, it, it will save you. You can't read all the fine print there, but what this is telling us is that Peloton will save you from isolation during the pandemic, and it will change your life. That's what it says right there. And more than that, Peloton, I, am I, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. What? I'm right. Okay, good. Uh, it will even save you from ugliness and a boring life. You will become a diva who is as good-looking and interesting as Beyonce. Did you know that? All you have to do is buy an exercise bike. It's amazing. So that's our biggest problem is we need to go get one of those. Um, this, this same kind of principle holds true with political leaders as well, doesn't it? Political leaders are sold to us as those who are going to solve everything, and they're going to save us from the other political party and all of their wrong ideologies, right? And by the way, we are in the most polarized time in our nation's history, so I realize I'm like stepping into a minefield even bringing this up. But what I want you to hear from what I'm about to show you is I'm not making a political statement, okay? My point is we're being told from political leaders that they are going to save us. For example, voting for Obama will fulfill your hopes for everything. Did you know that? Or voting for Trump will help you recover all that you have lost. And, and these guys are obviously not the only people who have political campaigns that are going. I don't know if you guys knew this, but as innocent as she may seem, the queen apparently created her own political campaign, Make America Great Britain Again. I don't know if you guys saw that, but... <laughs> okay, that's just a joke, but um, I thought that was kind of amazing. Uh, we're coming back now. We're, stay with me, sorry. We're, we're actually investigating real ways that we are tempted to, to look to false messiahs. Okay, Christian Mingle, how about that one? Christian Mingle, if you don't know, um, I wish we could like kind of zoom in like on your phone right here. You can't quite see it that well. But Christian Mingle will save you from loneliness. And get this, through them, Christian Mingle tells us, God will give you whatever your heart desires. You see that? It quotes Psalm 37.4. God wants you to have the desires of your heart, and Christian Mingle is the portal for you to get that. That's going to fulfill Scripture. All you have to do is go to Christian Mingle, and you will be saved. And lastly, I don't have a slide for this because this is so ingrained in our society that no one needs to put it on a marketing campaign. Nobody needs to, to give you a photo to show you, but yourself, you are taught to be the savior of yourself. You are the best Messiah. Only you can do it. And so even if none of these things that I've just shown you have actually appealed to you, even if you haven't bought the bait, if you will, all of us are constantly being inundated with marketing and pictures of people who have some product and they got a smile on their face and that's showing us that therefore they have the good life that we want. But if we know that all of these things are not actually true, if we will not get saved by voting for this candidate or buying this product, why do we buy what they're selling? Why do we accept it? I think it's because we are all longing for a Messiah. We are all longing for a true king, an ideal king, 
to come and, and to save us. And if you still don't believe me, I, I invite you to answer this question. What is one thing in the world that you wish could be different right now? What is one thing that, that you wish were changed right now? What is one thing that maybe you've been trying to change and you can't? And your answer to those questions will lead you to what kind of a savior you have envisioned. What kind of a Messiah you want to come and save you. Which actually leads us back, of course, to Jesus. Who is the Jesus that you have in your mind? Who is the Jesus that you have envisioned? You know, we're so prone to creating and crafting a Jesus that looks, acts, and sounds the way that we want him to. You know, maybe your Jesus is full of love, but he never gets angry. Maybe your Jesus is a good teacher, but he's not God. Maybe your Jesus is all-powerful, but he's not humble. What kind of Jesus do you have in your mind, and how is your Jesus different from the actual Jesus? The actual Jesus is the true Messiah, the King, the Savior of the world, but he breaks the mold of what we have been conditioned to expect him to be. He won't fit in our box. A pastor friend of mine said, he's not the king that we expect or want. He's the king that we need. Jesus, here's the big idea. Jesus is the true Messiah we actually need. And that is what he revealed on that first Palm Sunday when he fulfilled that passage that we read in Zechariah 9. And it was predicted, of course, all those hundreds of years earlier when Zechariah wrote these things. And it describes this king coming into town, returning from battle. That's the picture that we were given in Zechariah 9. It's a victory march, really. And this king, as he comes back into town after this victory, he can come on a donkey and not a war horse because that war has ended. His enemies have been defeated. There's no more threat. The people are now at peace. And so why did Zechariah prophesy this? Why did his people need to hear this? And the answer to that question is going to Tell us not only what Jesus was doing as he fulfilled it, but also what relevance Palm Sunday has in our lives. How did what Zechariah said give his people hope? Well, here's what was going on at the time of Zechariah. I think this is fascinating. Zechariah was a priest who returned with God's people to Judah after being in exile in Babylon. This happened around 538 B.C. And though he returned with them and altogether they came back, uh, Zechariah didn't begin his prophetic ministry for another 20 years after they came back. Why, why is there that long gap? Well, I, the, the gap exists because of what can happen to all of us in our own lives. A big change happens. You're excited for it. You're lit up. You're ready to go. And then, over time, things begin to wax and to wane and, and to dwindle. And that's exactly what happened with God's people. And that is why Zechariah 
prophesied these words 20 years after they returned, because you can imagine how excited they were initially. You know, they'd been in exile for 70 years, and now finally, they're not just returning to their homeland and to their extended families, but most importantly, they were returning to the promised land where God dwelled so that they could build, rebuild the temple where God's presence met with God's people. So everybody was just fired up, excited to meet with him once again, to be able to make sacrifices to him once again so that he would bless them once again. But by the time Zechariah begins to prophesy, these people had grown both materially and spiritually weary. That's that 20 years. Because they had come home. They had actually laid the foundation of the temple after their return. But though they were permitted to worship God, they were still under the distant hand of the Persian Empire. And they were forced to pay these cripplingly high taxes. They were kind of hamstrung. And though they had recovered the Old Testament scriptures, most people weren't obeying them. So all that they had hoped for, all that had brought them home, hadn't actually taken root. And what's interesting is that a similar dynamic was also going on in Israel at the time of Jesus when this was fulfilled. The people of Judah, uh, they were permitted to worship the Lord, and the temple had been completed, but now they were under the hand of the Roman Empire, not the Persian Empire, and Rome had put into place this puppet king to rule over Israel, clearly not the one that was described in Zechariah 9. And they even called this king the king of the Jews. But he worked for Rome. They were the ones who put them there. This guy may have uh, enforced the Pax Romana, but he didn't bring that true worldwide peace that was described in verse 10. Do you remember that? If you could pull that up, Ryan, verse 10. That world, no, verse 10, worldwide peace from sea to sea. This, this puppet king didn't bring that true worldwide peace where all the weapons and, and war horses are cut off and, and put out of use. And on top of that, at the time of Jesus, these taxes were still high. Rome was taxing the people of Judah and, and, and their own people, the people of God, were actually collecting these taxes for the Romans. And there was tons of corruption both in the political and the religious sectors and so as an occupied nation, Judah was powerless, they were small, they were weak, and while it was an improvement over being war slaves and war captives in Babylon, they were still longing, longing for the Messiah, the long-awaited king to come and save them. And Jesus arrives on the scene, and it, it looks good. It looks good. It looks like this is really the guy that we were waiting for. It seems like everything is right. The signs are there. He brought peace, like it said in verse 10. Any Jew, good Jew would have known that peace was far more than just the absence of war. This was like total societal flourishing and well-being, plants, animals, people, everything right? Materially, spiritually, everything was flourishing. Jesus brought this. 
every place that he went. I'll give you some examples. He powerfully healed. He brought peace. He powerfully healed. In fact, maybe only a week before Jesus rolls into Jerusalem, we heard he had raised Lazarus from the dead. That's true peace. Jesus also taught with authority, as we've been looking at in Matthew's gospel. Jesus fed thousands and thousands of people at a time, so he was caring for people. He was taking care of their material needs. And Jesus even welcomed the poor, the marginalized, the worst sinners that anyone could have ever imagined. Prostitutes, or what would be our modern equivalent of People like drug dealers and addicts and gang members, right, and corrupt politicians. Jesus welcomed them all and invited them into his kingdom and into relationship with him where they were transformed in his presence. Jesus brought peace. And so when Jesus comes to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover, there were crowds and crowds of people that were following him. Many of them may have even had these verses from Zechariah 9 in their imaginations, dreaming of what it would be like when he would destroy their enemies, fantasizing about it maybe even. But as we've said, Jesus doesn't conform to our standards. He doesn't fit into our box. And there's always more to him than meets the eye. He's not the king that we want. He's the king that we need. And through, though his entry into Jerusalem is often called the triumphal entry, it was actually a day full of mystery and foreshadowing. You guys know what I mean by foreshadowing, like in a good movie or, 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 or book where they, in the story, show you something that is going to happen much later, right? Like in The Lord of the Rings where Frodo says to Gandalf, he says, It's a pity Gollum hadn't been killed, and Gandalf says, do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play yet, for good or for ill, before this is over. Of course, those of you who know that story, you know that Gollum had a very important part to play in that story before it was over. I won't give any spoilers for those of you guys who haven't seen that. But another, another example of foreshadowing, like in Star Wars, right, the classic statement that's in every single movie, I have a bad feeling about this, right? <laughs> There's a lot of YouTube videos about that one. Next time that you notice something like that in a story, think of Palm Sunday. Think of Palm Sunday because Palm Sunday was a victory march before the victory had taken place. That's what was going on. Jesus was showing what was to come. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen that week. He even predicted it. He knew that he was coming into Jerusalem to go to a false trial. He knew that he was going there to be beaten within an inch of his life. He knew that he was going there to suffer the greatest and most excruciating pain that human beings have ever been able to inflict on each other, crucifixion. He was going there, he knew, to willingly lay down his life for the sins of the world, for your sins and for my sins. 
The victory ride, it's supposed to take place after the king defeats all of our enemies, not before. But Jesus was showing the way in which God is in control of all of human history, past, present, and future. He came into town knowing full well what he was getting himself into. He knew that the world was about to get turned onto its head. That, that his death on the cross would appear as shame and loss and disappointment like no one had ever experienced before and no one has experienced since. And yet it would be the very place where victory would be secured. And that victory would birth a new age of salvation. And that's even how Zechariah said that this king would come and save and bring peace. We haven't looked at this yet, but verse 11 goes on to say, as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, Jesus uses those exact words, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. He would save the nations and bring the peace of God to the whole world, not by shedding the blood of his enemies, but by shedding his own blood. As he rode in on that donkey, Jesus wasn't just showing us what he would do, though. He was also showing us something about who he is. He is this ideal king described in Zechariah 9. I'll just run through this with you for a second. He is righteous. That's what that king was described as. Jesus is righteous. He lived a sinless life in obedience to God. No one else in human history and no one else for the rest of human history can make that claim. He is the epitome of perfection. And Jesus is also the Savior. That's what was also promised in Zechariah 9. He is the one who saves. The Bible says that there is no other name by which we can be saved. Jesus is the only way to eternal salvation in God. And Jesus is humble. This, I think, is one of the most beautiful things about Jesus as our Savior. Jesus is humble, which the Bible describes, get this, as counting others more significant than yourself. Think about that. Here is the king of the universe, the eternal creator of all things, who humbles himself as a man, who humbles himself on a donkey, and who humbles himself literally to the point of death on our behalf. And lastly, Jesus is the one who brings worldwide peace. How? How did he do it? Colossians says, he made peace by the blood of his cross. He killed the hostility that alienated us from God and alienated us from one another. And he reconciled us to God and reconciles us to our fellow human beings across everything that would otherwise divide us. Every culture 
Every class, every country, every color, Jesus is uniting to one another and to himself. None of this would have been expected by the crowds. None of it. They thought (laughs) that the Messiah would go out on a war horse before coming in on a donkey. They thought that he would overthrow Rome before taking uh, on an earthly throne. But again, Jesus didn't meet people's expectations. He's not the king that they wanted. He was the king that they needed. And on Palm Sunday, everyone is there celebrating, not everyone, but most everyone is there celebrating this king that they thought he would be. But within a matter of days, they were crucifying the king that he actually is. On Sunday, they're celebrating the king that they want. On Friday, they're crucifying the king that they actually need. And just like them, we must have eyes to see that Jesus is a far better, far greater Messiah, Savior, and King than we imagine in our own minds. He is a far greater King than we often want. At the beginning of the message, we looked at all those examples of false messiahs that we are being sold every single day. Friends, Jesus is the better Messiah than the one that you've been looking for to save you from that thing that you are trying to avoid. He is a far greater one than the one that you would settle for. Jesus is the true Messiah we actually need. Palm Sunday, it ends with a bit of an eerie feeling in the air. I don't know if you experienced that as we were hearing some of those parts of the story read. This, this party has happened, and then Jesus is in tears, right? He's, he's rebuking those who haven't recognized him as the true king, and then he goes into this temple, turning over the tables of the greedy money changers. And we're kind of left wondering, this is, is unsettling. This is unresolved. What will Jesus do about all of this? What will he do to make things right? Everything is corrupted, Jesus is revealing. How will he take his rightful throne and spread his rule to the ends of the earth? And the answer is, Good Friday and Easter will tell us. Two community group questions for you to spark some conversation this week. What is one thing in the world you wish could be different? I asked that question earlier. And what is one alternative or maybe false Messiah, you place your hope in to save you. Second question, who is the Jesus you have formed in your mind and how is he different from the actual Jesus? Let's pray and then let's respond to God. Heavenly Father, as I prayed at the beginning, God, we are so thankful that you have sent Jesus to show us what you are truly like, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to actually be the Savior that we need. And Jesus, as Messiah, my prayer is that right now all of us would see you for who you truly are and that we would be changed by you. And so as we go from this place 
in a few moments as, as we worship you in this place right now, would you continue to do that work of transformation in our lives? We pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.